The ACN podcast is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners and sponsors, including the Agile Alliance. As a nonprofit membership organization, the Agile Alliance is an excellent resource to help you along your Agile journey. To learn more about the Agile Alliance and our other sponsors, as well as how you can become a sponsor or supporter of our show, please visit acnpodcast.org for more information. And thank you for your support. This is the Agile Coaching Network. I have missed this call, having been away throughout December, so I'm glad that we're back together. This is brought to you by Agile Alliance. If you don't know who the Agile Alliance is, uh, go to agilealliance.org. It's a nonprofit organization that's been supporting Agile and Agile adoptions for, gosh, over a decade now. What we do at this call is, is that we have a group of people coming together and having discussions about Agile and Agile adoptions. So with that, we're going to get started like we normally do with the Agile Narrative Project. And this time we're going to be looking at a particular story about uh, Agile adoptions being called done when they're not done. And the story goes, can we stop calling it done? Overall, it's crazy to declare your Agile adoption is done, especially when your company is far from being completed. And it's been twice now and we've let our coaches go, but we still need help. This is a story of concern. They consider it to be quite common and it's about avoiding change. The person were uh, having their manager read this story. They believe that their manager would be in strong disagreement. Middle management would be 100% disagreement and their executives would disagree as well. So would anyone like to give a you know start to talking about how we can take such stories and how can we dampen this from occurring in the future? There is a point where it is really done for needing an outside coach, but only if they have brought in and or taken from their existing staff people that they have trained who are um, knowledge seekers that would continue to communicate and work with organizations like this one and keep growing their knowledge and keep helping teams as they, you know, as the team changes, you have to keep always changing. So if they're not keeping somebody within the company that has grown coaching skills during that time, I definitely think it's crazy to let go of the coaches. But I do think a company can bring in somebody as a permanent employee to fill that role as a scrum master or coach that helps the teams. Right. So you, you think that um, within the perspective of, of being able to gain enough knowledge internally where it's now sort of self-supporting, then this might be a, an okay move. But it's when they're doing it too early, when there's too many knowledge gaps. Right. Do they, they don't have the people put in place. And maybe that's where they're lacking with the agile coaches or coaching the teams and and not really developing new coaches. Right. So developing that internal capability. John, what, what do you think? Hi, I'm going to throw a, a curveball in here. Um, so I would even argue that it's not really about the company's end goal to be agile. I mean, that's not really the, the point. Uh, it's really more about what they want to do as an organization and how they can leverage agile to get there. So if they're not accomplishing what they need as far as their goals, then I think that's really the, the bigger question. Sure. And and I've seen this quite a bit where, you know, a number of companies will, will set Agile as the destination. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the wrong perspective. It is definitely the wrong perspective. It's what business goals are we trying to go achieve? And Agile is one way that we can go get there. So when you're 
when you're saying from a goal perspective, what would you say would be balanced goals in this particular case that would be okay to let your coaches go? Well, I kind of liken it to just any sports analogy. I mean, you're still going to have a need for coaches and scrum masters, probably not as much as you would initially, but there's always going to be a need. I mean, mm-hmm. at some point, the focus has to t- turn away from teams and process to helping the organizational issues. Sure, it just continues to grow and into other areas. Uh, Philip, what do you have? Yeah, this is an instant challenge. You know, I've experienced this a few times. Um, I find usually it's it's really comes down to what the organisation has defined as their agile adoption journey they want to go on. Because really, agile is a is a journey, not a destination. Mm-hmm. So it should forever be evolving, moving forward, and changing as the organisation as the marketplace changes. And I've certainly found that quite often the definitions a company uses are very very lightweight, and they can quite easily quickly say, "Yes, we've done." We're we're now an agile enterprise or an organization using antip- um, agile uh, processes and behaviors. When many ways, the, the people on the shop floor doing the work are still using a sort of hybrid mixture of waterfall behaviors and everything else. They're saying the right words. They're talking about the agile ceremonies, but the actual behaviors and the philosophies they're adopting is still quite often waterfall. But because organizations can label it as being agile, it's it seemed to be successful. Right. And, and I've noted a number of enterprise where they've made the declaration and they said, we've achieved these goals that we were trying to go off and achieve with Agile. And the first emergency comes up and they all go back to those waterfall ways. You know, it's sort of the, you know, have a fire drill on a nuclear submarine. They do those things so that to see whether or not the training has sunk in. But you know, it's they- and, and that's true. If a company starts using the term hybrid, you know they they're not truly becoming agile. Oh, we they're use little, we use little a agile, not big a agile. What are yeah. you talking about? <laughs> yes, that's right. Let's play with all these words to get them to mean what we want it to you know, make us look good. <laughs> exactly. Is there anyone else that want to uh, kind of dive into this question a little bit deeper, or do we want to go to the the core questions that other people have asked online? John, did you have a, another thing to add to this? No, I'm good. So the top question up here, and this is one that I've heard multiple times across my coaching career, which is I'm seeing a trend of story points being used as time estimates, which is, you know, eight points equals one week uh, rather than relative estimation. How can coaches change this mindset? Does anyone want to take a first stab at this? Yeah. So this this really, really bothers me big time. I mean, I, I, I think it, I, I'll just go flat out and say it's dishonest when, when people are doing that. I think it's it started with somebody who didn't understand it, but happened to be in that job and then started introducing this because they didn't understand how how do you go from, uh, oh, our team did 20 points worth of work. And what does that mean in terms of hours? They just didn't know how to do that in the very first sprint or iteration. So they just started doing that. It's, it's a very simple concept. Uh, it's a, a story is the smallest unit of work you uh, unit of work you implement, and a story point is a way to measure the size of that work. And the size of the work translates to time once you finish doing the work and you measure how much time it took. And right. so these are techniques to use. This is a planning technique. It's a tool for managers uh, and leaders to utilize. And it's not about so yeah, you want to look at an average of what a story point. Just look at your past history of last print and the previous one and the one before that, and you will get a number. But that number is only historically useful to plan for future. And this whole notion of 
one point equals eight hours is bogus, is bunkum, dishonest, and it's hurting so many companies. Yes. Yeah. John and Philip, you have your hand up. You go ahead and dive in when you're when you're ready. Sure. Hey, this is John. Um, yeah, this is a question that I'm sure a lot of us have experience with. It kind of leads into people asking how much does a story point cost? Um, and I get where the question comes from. It's generally how uh, it's, it's, it's coming from a place of, well, we need reports. We need to figure out how much money we're going to spend. And I get that. Um, kind of the question I usually ask is, what if story points were optional? What if we're not even using them, Kit? How can we get that same information without story points and usually get back with, well, they're required, you have to have them. But it's really about figuring out ways you can show people to gather that same information without all the overhead of a planning poker session. I think it was mentioned earlier, we talk about how long is it going to take to get things done. We talk about cycle time, talk about velocity, but it's really trying to alleviate their actual problem that they're trying to solve with getting some report so it's kind of a that's kind of where I where I see it going. Well, well, what I find is is that number one, humans are horrible at time estimates. You know, oh yeah, they they just and I'm the same way. You know, someone tells me how long is that going to take, and you know, well, I think it's going to take me a couple hours, and then you know, a couple hours later, it's going to take me a few more hours, and so on. And that just that whole notion of talking about the complexity of something, and then using the total brain of the organization or the total brain of the team to kind of balance that out with the complexity um, of the particular task. And then looking back in retrospect, rather than trying to go reach too far forward. Um, Philip, what do you have? Yeah, I mean, as everybody said, we've all experienced these sort of questions before. I think a lot of it as well depends on the culture of the organization. Um, developers find this the hardest thing to move to from time, from you know, time estimates to story points. And I think a lot of it is their fear about being blamed. If they say the wrong number, they get blamed if it's not correct. So I think a lot of it is, is being able to work in a safe environment, you know, and explain to them, this is all about relative sizing. It's not an absolute. It is at this moment in time, what, how big is this piece of work from a, a sort of perspective of the effort you need to put into it, but also its risk as well. Uh, and it's all about saying every project is individual, is different. You can't compare one to the other. But the starting point is determine for this project what you think is a medium piece of work. And we'll call a medium piece of work a five. And then we'll just compare it. And other stories will just compare to that baseline story. Is it bigger or is it smaller? If it's bigger, how much bigger is it going to be? Mm-hmm. And, and, and get people to understand that it's, it's a guide and not an absolute. And it helps us determine how much work we can feasibly get done in an in a iteration or sprint. And we'll refine it as we go along. We'll get better and better and better at doing this. And I think as long as you explain to people, say they're not going to be blamed if things are wrong, that we don't estimate it correctly, I think over time, certainly my experience, is it's pull people along where they become second nature after a while. Hmm. Yes. And Michelle, what do you have? So I think it's sometimes good to talk about accuracy versus precision and what our goals are. And I found that when I have a team that hasn't done any kind of story pointing, to take it out of something that they're comfortable, into an area where they're comfortable with, compare, use story point cards to compare relatively, you know, how difficult it is to peel a grape versus peel a banana versus peel an orange or peel an apple. And then they can see that we're not looking at time, we're looking at relative difficulty in this arena. And then... 
going through a full pointing exercise with something that they can relate to, they can usually start lining up, you know, say six tasks, try to find one that they believe to be a center and work from there relatively. Right. So what you're saying is, is you, you, you really need to, um, in order to change the mindset, you need to really walk people through the process more effectively and, and sort of help them to visualize it a little bit better. Yeah. And to something that they're not comfortable with, because I work on a team where I'm from a, a kind of a conservative organization where, you know, we're functionally siloed. So a cross-functional team means a strictly database te- person who's only done database stuff can be on a team with developers. So I try to give a context for that team to work outside of that they're all comfortable with, that they don't start arguing over, um, you know, uh, minutia or really detailed items like I'm the de- the database developer, so I know this versus you. So to give them a context to understand pointing as kind of a concept and then move to work. Right. No, I, I, I fully agree with that. That sounds like a great approach. I A lot of the points they have brought up, I think, are very good. But I think often a team is working agilely with the points and it's not the team themselves so much that's trying to see those points as a unit of time measure and often for some very good reason. Your salesperson may be needing to let a client know about how long they're going to work for this special custom development or something of that type. So while I don't really want the team to not understand, nor the people that are stakeholders not to understand, uh, eight points could be because we think it's a three points worth of effort, but there's so much unknown once we get in there that it might end up being much more complex so that they can't guarantee a week is an eight point. But to understand that for some people, they have to look and say, well, if your eight points is going to be done in a sprint, then I can kind of guess that in two weeks, I'll have that item. And I think the biggest is that trust piece. I can't remember which one of the speakers brought that up, but is that there's enough trust within the organization that they can say that people are estimating to the best of their ability and not hold them accountable where it docks them in in their job or that they're conceived as being incompetent in their work and they're estimating. Uh, You know, I I was a part of an organization where for whatever reason, there was this conflation that occurred between this word commitment and this word or planning and and estimating. And for whatever reason, um, we would go through a planning exercise. And just because based on the knowledge that we had during the planning, we thought it was going to be approximately this size or this long to go off and deliver. And we, we would have have this notoriously the scenario of uh, it took longer. And the question is, is how do you treat somebody when when it doesn't come true as expected? Because maybe we learned something new as we started digging into it. Or the opposite extreme, which was accidental success, where we actually got it done quicker than we expected. And how do we treat people there as well? And and I think it all wrappers right back around to the word of you know what we're doing. It's an estimate. And it, it, I think it's going to take this long. And until we dig into it, sometimes we don't know. Can um, I add you, one more thing? Please. Okay. So uh, I think one, one aspect that almost never gets discussed, and, and we haven't discussed even today, is, well, uh, one of the core things in Agile is time and money are fixed 
and scope is uh, to is flexible and we realize that we acknowledge that in waterfall you pretend that somehow scope can be fixed and so can time and money at the same time and so the key uh, reason we use user stories is so that we can fi- define a valuable unit of requirement that can be implemented end to end within a sprint comfortably the invest acronym right it's independent right. small verifiable estimable and so on so if a story is too big uh, the product management skill requires you to you adjust the scope so that the story is comfortably uh, capable of being done in that sprint if it is too complex if it's too big then as a product owner product manager own it figure out how to simplify it so that you can get something built in that sprint and it's not really about time it's really about can we do these stories together in this sprint so that we can add value at the end of the sprint if we ship this to our customer so so one one thing that i've done as well is and this is the question back to the i think the management of needing some sort of time estimate we have actually created on a wall we we would put up user stories that we've done before in the past and we would put you know the number of story points that it represented and the you know you can go put some average times of what the throughput through the factory was but one of the things that you always have to be cautious of and i think someone mentioned this earlier is that for me the complexity of something new might be incredibly high meaning that it, it my fibonacci number that i'll give out will be high because i don't have the domain knowledge and it might in fact take me longer to go off and do that work which is okay because it's it's understandable because of just my approach and over time and my knowledge increases i would expect that number of what it took to go create that thing to be less you know the fibonacci number would be lower itself um did anyone else have anything else to add to this or do we want to go pivot to the next question anytime somebody asks you the question or ask us the question uh how much time will it take they they're not understanding agile you should never have to ask the question how long will this take the answer is always two weeks or one week whatever the length of your sprint so we will be done at the end of this sprint and we will show you what we have built and we will kind of if you want to calculate the average amount of time uh, uh, per, for per story point but that's just an academic of interest and it's a planning tool as as i already talked about earlier sure ron you raised your hand up while we were talking about that what do you have to add yeah i can I kind of agree with the the idea of you know looking back historically on what if you want to look at averages uh in terms of what a certain rating on a story or sizing was but actually if they're hung up on the number itself the story points uh maybe it's time to step away from the numbers and I think everybody's pretty familiar with the notion of using uh t-shirt sizing but mm-hmm. typically t-shirt sizing just focuses on how big it is which implies how much time So maybe you make a greater distinction between that and say maybe a a small t-shirt is actually like just one of those sleeveless muscle man shirts and then the next size up is uh one with sleeves and maybe a design the next one might be a button down shirt the next one might be a uh a dress shirt and the next one might be a sport coat or something like that so it implies not only sizing changes but also complexity in there and then once they kind of figure out what their baseline is then you know they they compare them between the the different uh values or different t-shirt or shirt types and then they can have 
a scale that's if it's this size, it's this many points and let's discuss less about the points and just kind of get the general notion of the difference between them in terms of the type of shirt and the size. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we, we actually used animal sizes, um, you know, an elephant versus a, you know, a, a mouse, you know, mm-hmm. that way people could get that visualization of of that sizing is, is absolutely um, a good case. Um, but notoriously, you know, as you know, that people still pull back through to try to go equate it to a number. And, and, and over the industry, I, I've noticed we still go back into trends where this, this tends to occur. And I think it, someone made the earlier point that there still is some form of time estimate that people are trying to go pull back to. And I think one of the summary items that we could take from this is that that notion that um, we work in two two week sprints or we work in three week sprints or whatever that time frame is, and we have a high degree of confidence because of the team's skill and the retrospectives that we look at of of being able to size effectively. That we know that we can produce you know one elephant every sprint and we can produce you know fifteen mice you know every sprint, and we we have a good idea that that's going to come true by the end. Um, and I think that confidence level is what we're trying to go build as coaches is we want the people to be confident enough that when they do set that size that it does fit within the sprint and by the time it gets to the end that it will come true and then stop worrying about weeks and months and all the other types of things do we want to move pivot to the next one i think we should if we want to pivot everyone raise their hands i want to see people raise their hands if they're paying attention look at this there's some hands going up i love it um so i'm going to go throw this one over into the archive and how do I encourage continuous development in a company uh, that's already doing Agile? How do we continue them to um, want to continue to grow? I guess my question would be, when they say continuous development, are they talking about development of the team skills or knowledge? If that were the case, then I would think that uh, if the team dedicated a certain time frame in their sprints, maybe every other Friday or something like that, uh, the team has a hack day or they have a, uh, a day where they learn something. And then uh, one of the teams at, at our company actually does that and they decide they're going to learn a new technology or experiment with it. And some of them may say, I'm going to go research this. And then at the end of the day, they do a quick little showcase to say, here's what I learned and here's what I did. And here's a POC I created. And maybe this is something we want to put into our backlog. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. My uh, this is Tani, and our development teams also do a hack Monday or whatever day is the first day of every sprint. But in addition to that, one of the things that they have chosen as engineers to do themselves is as they're learning and growing, they turn around and periodically one of them will lead a class teaching some new skill that they've learned to the other engineers in the company. And that's gone over super well. There's 50 of them and almost everybody shows up for the trainings. And I really see a lot of effort where the one that's getting his ready for the next opportunity is actually setting up some sandbox so everybody can participate along with him and you know, use the code that they're learning. Would you say that that, that that person having to train that knowledge, is that helping them to develop mastery? Oh, I definitely think so. And it's helping encourage everyone to realize there are times when we're all stumbling with a new technology or 
idea. And when we do our retrospectives, they are much more open to choosing as a thing to do something that really is very valuable and helpful to the team, whether that's um, learning how to support the testing effort more or improving on a process. I just feel like people are just really excited about learning to the point when we did our engagement survey, they said we didn't have enough hours devoted to learning and they wanted more. So we went from doing every other sprint Hackman day to every sprint. That's awesome. That's, that's a, that's a good pattern. Uh, Lisa, you had your hand up. I was going to say something uh, similar in that there's always opportunities for improvement on a process, uh, pain points that a team might be feeling or an organization. And by using agile methods and introducing them to new ways of thinking about things, it helps them continue to grow in their agile journey. Um, what we found was, is we actually switched the daily stand-up question a, a little bit. Instead of saying, you know, the what did you do yesterday? What am I doing today? Those things. Um, we actually asked, um, what did you learn yesterday? Uh, hmm. What do you want? What do you want to learn today? And we we strategically put in that learning word was, and this is sort of that safe to fail environment we were trying to go create, which was it, it, it was okay to fail, but it wasn't okay not to learn. You know, and we wanted to make sure that that was sort of reinforced in the culture. I think you brought up something very important. If the leadership team is not making sure everyone feels that it is truly safe to fail and that people will help them get out of the failure and give them the time to learn from it, they're not going to be willing to try to keep developing their agile processes because they're only going to do what has been already approved. Exactly. And in that environment of being able to take in that that next step to um, implementing anything. And that that's including the from the product to the process that we use that I, th- I think, at least for us, we were uncomfortable about inserting some new method. Um, we're definitely uncomfortable about removing it if it didn't work. For whatever reason, everything felt like policy for some reason. Um, and we had to get our mindset out of there. How about others? Sure, this is John again. Um, first, I want to say I love how they put already doing Agile in quotes. Um, but if we're talking about continuous development as far as releasing code, I think, at least in my experience, there's a kind of a misunderstanding about sprints. I, I hear quite a bit of times that uh, you know they have to release each sprint, and it's kind of this association that uh, – a sprint is a release. And when we talk about continuous development, you know, that really doesn't have anything to do with a two or three or four week sprint. It's really disassociating that. So it's kind of like you can release every day. The only thing you're really required to do at the end of a sprint is you you talk about the progress you've made, you, you talk about what you've learned, and then you, you plan for the next iteration. So I, I think really instilling that mindset is where a starting point to talk about encouraging continuous development but that's kind of really more scrum specific. Kanban is a whole other can of worms. But uh, but yeah, that's kind of where I would start with that. Yeah, I think some t- sometimes people make a mistake when they're doing Kanban is that there are certain rituals that you can do to reflect on that, which is I would notoriously put after we get a lot of stuff in the done camp over there and kind of borrowed the, the technique from Scrumbon, which was, hey, maybe we should do a retrospective. we've got we've got got a lot done over there yeah let's let's have a conversation about how we're doing all of that i'm not sure if you've inserted those as well so to help in in those reflections oh yeah definitely sometimes with uh for a combat team one of the uh 
one of the cards would actually be a retro. Yeah, and and it's it's fun to put in. Um, some I, I've had certain times where I'll I'll throw a card up in the in the backlog, and you'll have some heavy sighs. But the, <laughs> but the heavy sighs are why did we? That's even another retrospect item right there. Why did you sigh when we did that? Because <laughs> nobody ever responds to the retrospective when we do them. Well, okay, well, what do we do about that? Yep. Yeah. Um, any other um, feedback on this one? Going once. If your hand is up, I assume that you and your microphone's enabled, you'll just dive in. If not, I'm just going to go and pivot to the next. Okay. I'm going to go pivot. You know, let's see. Uh, as a coach, um, there are many concerns that I see in the organizations implementing SAFE. Is there anything that you can caution others to be wary of? Does anyone want to kick that off? Especially if there's big advocates here about uh, how to go address this. The silence. I love it. Um, I'll dive in, um, not as an advocate, but just to, to share. This is Lisa. That um, I think there's a need for scaled, agile, not necessarily safe, but some form of, of a scaling so that you can get the teams collaborating at a program level. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and I, I agree with that as well. I mean, I I was very fortunate to go visit Nokia and John Deere Tractor, which were the two primary companies that um, sort of refined release trains. You know, the, the how do we take this big, huge amount of backlog and how do we sequence it effectively across multiple teams? And I and I thought the pattern was good. I, I liked and enjoyed that and, and saw their implementation of it. And I thought it was a, a really good working pattern. And then when, um, I don't know, we're safe 5.0 now, I'm not sure what the, the version is. And they started just clumping in so much stuff into it. I think my biggest wary uh, point of it is, is that when patterns are are not really well vetted, uh, and I'll, I'll point to the portfolio level um, that's on that diagram. And I visit a lot of companies and I've yet to find some really good companies that have a, a good implementation or any implementation of the top side of that structure. So I'm, I'm wary of just because it's on the diagram doesn't mean that it's really well vetted out. You know, how about others? So, so what if um, we look at not safe, but scaled agile in the same way we look at agile and uh, all of the various tools under that, like Scrum and uh, Kanban, and just say we need to look at the organization and find a way to implement something that works for them under their constraints, under their structure. Uh, I, I, I think that, it, and I did recently get safe certified, <laughs> not not for any reason except that I was told that it was a good thing to have, and now I've got that information in my toolbox. But I think there's a need for a generic uh, way of doing it, but it has to be flexible, as in yeah. any other agile method to to work for you know the way that each organization needs it to work. I agree with that, and and we've we've got to the point of saying that um, you know. Following an ingredient versus being a chef, you know, we mm. needed we needed more chefs, which is these are the ingredients that we have. 
um, how do we create a tasty, you know, scrum team <laughs> based <laughs> upon the elements that we have and mix them together in a way that fits the system that we're trying to go build. But that required our, our coaches to be, you know, very fluent in how to do, um, you know, human systems engineering and, and systems engineering to kind of bring those components together effectively mm-hmm. and, and make something custom. Yeah, this is Ron. Uh, yeah, Ron. One of the things that uh, we talked about is, you know, ways that we can scale all what we're doing with Scrum and, and even teams that aren't Scrum. Um, and so we we are looking into all of the different types of scaling frameworks and not necessarily prescribing to one to the letter, but uh, looking for what's the best of each of those and maybe coming up with our own approach that's kind of a hybrid of the different types mm-hmm. uh, rather than just prescribing to one and then adhering to it 100%. I fully agree. What we ended up having to come down to was that at different phases of our product lifecycle, which is, you know, if I had to say we started in sort of this opportunity uh, phase, uh, we went to concept and concept rolled over into candidate and candidate rolled over into solution. And then after solution obsolescence, that the method that we would go pick, um, the frameworks and, and methods that we would use would vary depending on where we were at in that global life cycle. And and it also had a varying degree of scrutiny depending on what product line. So if it was a, a piece of medical equipment, um, it had a higher degree of, of scrutiny or something that was being sold to a banking product, a higher degree of scrutiny or, you know, a missile system versus a consumer-based system. You know, it, it had to vary based upon on need. Did you find the same thing? Well, I mean, we've experimented with different types. Like we tried a scrum of scrums, but we didn't really know enough about it that time to to really have it be successful. Uh, then we've uh, looked at uh, using less and actually used that to kind of structure a group of teams to operate that we're going to kick off. But we're also looking at the other ones too, because there may be there may be elements of those that actually, if we put that with using, say, less, uh, that might actually be even better fit for for a group of teams. Uh, and it could vary depending on, you know, which groups of teams you're trying to get to, to work together on a, a common solution. So right. we're experimenting, we're, you know, testing our hypothesis and seeing uh, what mix or what combination of things would work best for certain teams. And then can we do that with others as well? Right. Yeah. yeah. Fully, fully agree. So I I think to summarize this, I think what we were hearing on the call is that, you know, the be wary of one method, you know, whether it be safe or whether it be even scrum, it's it's, you know, know the system and how it fits and how it can be integrated in effectively into your organization. And as long as it still applies with the agile principles and values, um, you're probably, you know, to use the word safe again, you're, you're safe to kind of, you know, kind of probe it in and see if it works for you. And don't be afraid to let it go if it's not working out for you and your organization as well. And there's a lot, plenty of other methods that are out there. We have about time for about one more question. And I'm scanning through the list of one that might be um, smaller, um, but uh, I'll just go ahead and dive into one here that uh, we might be able to um, wrap up before the top of the hour. How much agile is the team structure versus the methods and approach? How much is it about structure versus methods and approach? Ryan, you still have your microphone active. Can I pick on you? Uh, actually, I would say 
neither. <laughs> uh, we tend to focus on one or the other. And I think if we haven't got the right mindset and understand what we're really, how we're trying to operate, then going through the motions of a certain approach or framework or even how the teams are structured um, is kind of like missing the point. Right. So, uh, Lisa, how about you? Do you have something to add to this one? I thought that was a great answer. Uh, it, they're all in, important in different ways, but if you don't have the underlying culture and, and beliefs in the Agile uh, fundamentals, then um, the other stuff isn't really going to work. Mm. Would, would you say, though, that um, structure and methods and approach sometimes could inhibit how much Agile can come into the organization? I kind of flip this question a bit. <laughs> Similar to my last answer, yes, because you don't want to be that structured. You want to be flexible and make it work depending on the situation. So you can introduce those structures or those methods and different approaches and then let the team determine what makes the most sense for them. It, what's interesting is, is I, you know, during December, I, I got to go visit ING Bank, which is implementing Agile and went to their executive area. And typically when I see agile adoptions, it typically is at ground level, uh, you know, where the development is going. But their executives were all sitting around a table in a common squad type of pattern that you would see at the team level. And I was impressed that they got rid of offices. They got rid of some structures that they had typically that were holding them apart. If you guys get a chance, I just posted that vlog, by the way, up on, um, it just got tweeted recently from the Agile Alliance. Go go take a look at them. Uh, I was impressed what they did with spaces. And I think that affects their methods and their approach. I think it definitely had an effect on their adoption. Does anyone else have something to add to this? I agree that how the room and areas set up when you get into a larger number of teams and there's no space for them to comfortably work um, in a stand up or scrum meeting rooms are not available. There's, you know, the way the floor set up, there really isn't room for the team to gather near their desk. It just that physical structure impacts it. But at the same time, if you put a number of people who are very resistant to adopting agile methods on the same team, no matter what framework you try to put around them, they're going to be fighting it. And you might find just getting attendance at a stand-up is a struggle. So I think both can work. Be things that really impact the success of Agile in your company. Right. I, I remember early on when we were talking about needing team rooms uh, for being be able to do group development, uh, as well as just a place to have a stand-up. I remember one time an executive walked by and they were looking at this group of people who were standing out in the field, you know, just right out the window. And they go, what are those people doing? And they were in a circle. And I, and I said, well, I have a pretty good guess they're doing a daily stand-up. And well, why are they standing out there? <laughs> because there's you can't get a conference room in this place. You know, there's there's no there's no area that's big enough for them to to have nine people stand around in a circle and talk about their work. And I thought that was um, sad, but this person actually walked and observed and then wanted to learn themselves. So, so team structure too, the other thing that I'll just point into this, and this is still an artifact with a number of companies. I'm a development team member, um, but when I say development team, I don't include test. Um, and I report to one manager and I am a test team member and I report to a test manager and those structures um, inhibit Agile quite a bit, I see in certain 
certain companies, which is you're trying to go form a crew of people and those managers sometimes don't know how to step out of the way and say that they're a member of that new team that just doesn't happen to fit into what we would traditionally think is an org structure. Yeah, that having people outside of the org structure, especially in a company that's recently been very siloed by skill sets or development sections, can be difficult to get them to let go of their team members and not give them permission to not participate in the cross-functional team. Right. Carlos, what, what do you have? I know you have your hand up now. Uh, it's a comment about uh, the discussion in the, uh, I believe, and I put in the, in the chat, I believe that the part, one of the part marks of the responsibility as a coach is uh, have the capability of, to observe the context and understand the context. And and previous to that, you know, understand what is the value and the principles of the team that they define as uh, understanding their 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 auto government in, in order to assure that they are making independent and they create a cohesive uh, safe environment. And in that in that context, we could define which of the different frameworks could be better because no the 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 the, the, the framework is not good or is bad as per se only need a context in order to be appropriate for, for use. Very good point. And we are now at the top of the hour. Thank you for your final thoughts there. And thank you everyone on the call for this month. Um, great conversations. I really enjoyed it. Um, if you guys want to uh, come visit me um, or if you guys want to go to a great event, probably be a better way of saying it. I'll be over at Agile Open Northwest uh, in Portland, Oregon on uh, February 6th through the 8th. Come over and visit me. I'll be a participant so we can just sit down and grab a post-it note and just put up on there let's go jam about some of the great stuff that we talk about on this call or any of the other types of great sessions that we might have at these great open space events um also in um coming up in march i will be at agile india uh, i'll be manning the agile alliance booth um if you're there please stop by have a conversation with me love to know more about your company and with that, that concludes our call for this month. I look forward to talking to you guys soon. This podcast is provided by the Agile Alliance for educational and informative purposes only. To find out more information about the member-supported Agile Alliance, please go to agilealliance.org to find out about more upcoming events as well as different programs that are available to help you with your Agile journey.